7 to 8 p.m. Sport on with Tabi Somosia. And a very good evening and welcome to the show. I am Taviso Musia Luyolo Mkalipi is the producer and, and uh, Sylvester Komane is with us in technical tonight as well as Debucho Khadebe on social media. This evening on the show we've invited Professor Steve Cornelius to come and speak to us. That is after the IAAF decided to suspend their new eligibility regulations for female classification that restricted uh, the testosterone levels of female athletes in the 400 meters, the hurdles, the 800 meters and the 1500 and uh, that is because Casta uh, Semenya has appealed these new regulations to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. So that's why the IAAF has decided to wait for the outcome of the appeal before implementing their regulations, which have been dubbed by some as the Casta Semenya regulations because uh, there is widespread belief that they are targeted at slowing down Casta Semenya. Now, you might remember that Professor Cornelius resigned from his role within the IAAF when these new regulations were announced a couple of months ago, saying that he cannot associate with an entity that insists on ostracizing certain individuals and he is now part of Semenya's defense team that is questioning uh, these rules at the Court of Arbitration for Sport and he will talk to us about their defense and what they foresee happening going forward. We'll also speak to a former athlete in Madeline Pape. Uh, the name might sound familiar because she's a former middle distance runner that used to compete against Casta and was very vocal uh, that she would uh, that Casta should not be allowed to run but Madeline has now changed her tune and she believes that the new regulations are unfair. She's currently a PhD candidate in sociology at the University of Wisconsin and she will tell us why she has changed her stance here. But before all of that, we want to talk a bit of basketball. That is because the new NBA season started yesterday and we will speak to NBA Africa MD Amadou Gallo Fall who will join us on the line just to let us know what we can look forward to this season. We'll also talk about the, the work that they doing here on the continent and they've got an office in Johannesburg and there's a big event the NBA Junior Finals are happening in Rustenbeck this coming weekend so we'll also talk to Amadou about that and if you want to join in the conversation at any time feel free to call us on 0891 let me repeat that 0891 our SMS line is 40938 our WhatsApp number 061 you can also send us voice notes on that whatsapp number and as always it's hashtag safm spot on after the break we talk a bit of nba for the story behind the action catch tabiso musia weekdays at 7 p.m and the nba africa managing director amadou galofall joins us on the line now uh, mr amadou good evening and thank you very much for finding time to speak to us on safm sir Good evening and thank you for having me. Before we get into the NBA season, there is something huge happening in Rustenburg this weekend, the Junior NBA Africa Finals. Just tell us more about about what's happening this Saturday. This is the eighth edition of our Royal Buffalo Sports Junior NBA uh, Finals. We launched the program there in Pokeng in 2011. Uh, this is really the, the blueprint that we've built and we've, you know, ultimately took around the continent to, you know, uh, launch Junior NBAs right now in 13 countries. Uh, it's, a grassroots, it's our grassroots development program that last year won the South Africa Sports Industry uh, yeah. Award for Best Development Program. So young people uh, were introduced to the game. 
2011, now we have leagues from primary school to high school. Uh, we, we will watch you know, uh, eight games, about 180 players participating. Um, we have people traveling from across the continent to come to Pokeng uh, to watch uh, what's happening in, 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 in Pokeng. It's really been um, you know, a basketball revolution there because when we first went in, most of those young people have never watched a basketball game. So today we play these finals in front of 10,000 people watching. You know? So this is something that for me personally is always the highlight of the year. It's an event I look forward to. So we all be there from tomorrow where we have an awards uh, gala award to really, um, you know, award the kids who are most deserving both for what they work in the academic, uh, in school, and also what they've done on the court. We've had, for example, uh, young players participating in the first junior NBA World Championship in Orlando. Two others were selected to take part in the trial of the first NBA Academy Africa uh, that took place in Senegal, and one of our coaches actually was the head coach for the African Middle East team that finished first in the international division at the first junior NBA World Championship in Orlando. So this is basketball development at its best. We're showcasing the great work that our coaches, most of them now local uh, mm. from Bukeng, are doing, and are really uh, it, this become an epicenter for basketball development on the continent. That's really great to hear. And this this program seems to be growing from strength to strength. How do you look back at NBA's impact in Africa and in South Africa since you've come this side? For us, I think, you know, really, Pokeng is, you know, I continue to say that, you know, was what gave us the, you know, uh, it's a litmus test. You know, we, 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 we were convinced that if we're able to do it there, we could do it, you know, anywhere. You go into a place where you build from scratch, you know. So we're now in places like Senegal or Nigeria or, or Kenya, Angola, and these were our other four priority countries when we first, you know, uh, decided to open our office in South Africa. Uh, South Africa was a place where we felt, you know, we had the biggest challenge because basketball was really very far down the line in terms of priority sport code. So what we've been able to achieve uh, in in Pokeng for us, you know, uh, was that uh, incentive that you needed to, to, to realize that, you know, the opportunity is, is tremendous and we don't have to go into Senegal and convince anybody about, about basketball. But here in Pokeng, we had to literally go to school assemblies to just, you know, evangelize. And, and I think um, eight years later, we're, we're very proud of the work that our coaches have, have done in that area. Uh, and I think that further cement our belief in the tremendous potential for basketball development across the continent through programs like Basketball Without Borders, which continue to be our flagship development program. You know, kids are participating from countries across the continent, and we've had players drafted in the NBA out of this program. Now we're bringing our marquee events like the NBA Africa Game, which we hosted the third edition uh, August 4th in, at San Arena in Pretoria. You know, I think the game is growing and the, popu- the popularity of the game is at an all-time high. Now that we're having an increasing number of African players in the league, that's only going to add to, 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 to the growth of the game.
Before we get into those African players in the NBA, I see you've also got uh, a WNBA player, Monique Curry, coming down to Pukeng this weekend. Is that also maybe specifically done to show the girls also what's possible and what can be achieved in the game of basketball? Absolutely. In all our development initiatives, we are, you know, uh, equal opportunists, you know, and and it happens that basketball is played at a very high level across gender. Our WNBA players are also global superstars. Everybody, you know, most people know players like Lisa Leslie, you know. Uh, Today we're talking about your Diana Taurosis, you know, and, and people who've played against around the world, won Olympic medals, and, and they bring all the, uh, you know, star power that the guys bring. Uh, so for us, you know, our number one priority is to grow participation among youth in, in our sport. And obviously you cannot ignore more than half the population. And it so happened that the girls, the women's game is very popular in a number of countries, you know, huge traditions in places like Mali, Senegal, Nigeria, Mozambique, right next year. Angola has been twice Afro-Basket champion in, in women also, as much as their men have dominated the scene. Uh, Egypt. So, yeah, we, we, you know, we have an increasing number of ladies also in the WNBA. So uh, we have African legends like uh, Clarice Mashangwana from Mozambique, Aspunjai from Senegal, Mawadi Mabika, who was a really first impact lady played play for the Los Angeles Parks, won titles, Amshatu Maiga from, from, from Mali. So there's a long list of uh, ladies also who've made their mark in the NBA. So in everything we do, we like to bring role models to present to these young boys and girls. Now, looking ahead to the new NBA season, firstly, um, as you mentioned, there seems to be a significant number of African players um, this season. How many does Africa have and what would you attribute, it, attribute this to? Opening night, uh, you know, two nights ago, we had 13 players uh, you know, born in Africa from nine different countries. I think really we could date this back to the pioneers, you know, Hakim Olajuwon, mm. 1984, the first overall uh, pick in the NBA draft, with me, ahead of even Michael Jordan. Uh, you know, Manut Ball, Dikembe mm-hmm. Mutombo, these were uh, great pioneers, and they, they paved the way for a host of now, you know, young stars and, and superstars. If we count, you know, when I say 13, it's the number of players who were actually born in Africa, but I could go up to 40 if I'm considering all the players whose parents are were born in Africa. You know, we have some you know, global superstars in the making in 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 uh, Joel Embiid in the Philadelphia 76ers. He was a you know uh, voted a starter last year in the NBA All-Star Game. Yannick Antetokounmpo from the Milwaukee Bucks, also his parents from Nigeria. I mean, he's having a phenomenal start of the season. So you know, Africa is very relevant in our league. Uh, because we've we've had players who not only participated but they start. You know, Hakim is one of the fifty top fifty greatest of all time. Dikembe Mutombo is today our global ambassador. You know, played twenty years in the league. Uh, you know, seven times All Star. So these are guys that really, you know, uh, wave the fly the flag very high. So now they were inspiration for the likes of. You know, Luol Deng and, and Joel Embiid, Luke Bamute, the Gorgi Jank. We've had like, you know, nine players drafted out of the Deep Basketball Our Borders program. And now with the launch of NBA Academy Africa, 
uh, based in Senegal, this number is going to continue to rise. And looking at the teams, Amadou, I would think that the Golden State Warriors remain the huge favourites for another title. But where do you think the other challenges will come from? Well, certainly you always want to, you know, give credit to the reigning champion. They are certainly, you know, a phenomenal team. And also they've added DeMarcus Cousin, another perennial all-star uh, who signed with them this off-season, uh, having adding that to to also you know four all-stars and Kevin Durant, uh, you know uh, Keith Green and and Clay Thompson and Seth Curry and a host of young talent. Uh, so they're still going to be the favorite. But for me, let's not forget also that last year Houston took them to a seven-game series and 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 lost the last game at home without Chris Paul, who's a you know, unconditional leader. So, you know, LeBron James moving to the Western Conference now at the Los Angeles Lakers, make the Lakers relevant again. So it's going to be interesting, you know, to, to really see the uh, the matchups there in the Western Conference, which I believe, you know, uh, have a lot of teams uh, that are with different, you know, degree of, obviously, of fortune, but even teams like the Los Angeles Clippers, you know, um, look, you know, like they're going to compete. Oklahoma City, uh, adding Dennis Schroeder from Atlanta and Nolans from from the Dallas Mavericks is also going to be there. Uh, you know, look in the Eastern Conference, Boston. You know, for me, you know, having gotten back the top two players that uh, were hurt, Kyrie Irving and Hayward, uh, and they're still making it to the. Eastern Conference Finals. I mean, I think getting them back certainly make them, uh, you know, a very very serious contender in the Eastern Conference. Philadelphia. That rivalry has always been exciting in the past. You know, in the days of the Larry Bird, and you know, you get Moses Malone at the Sixers with Dr. J. You know, so you had Bird and Parrish and McHale and all those guys in Boston. That rivalry is coming back. You know, uh, I think it's going to be really, you know, interesting. Uh, Toronto, you know, having signed uh, Kyrie Leonard, you know, one of the top three players on healthy, I think also is going to remain a force there. So, you know, I think for me as a basketball fan, this is a great time of the year because all the teams are pretty much in equal footing. So everybody has a chance. So let's see what happens, you know, in a month or so. I think you can start to see really um, uh, who the real contenders will be. But uh, I'm just excited to see the level of parity in the league. You know, every year you have an influx of new talent. This past year's draft was one of the deepest in in years. So already I saw, as I said, Phoenix beating the Dallas Mavericks, where you have two of the top drafts in DeAndre Ayton, who was the number one overall pick, going against uh, Luka Doncic uh, at the Mavericks, who was picked, I believe, number four or fifth. You know, these are bright young stars and already out of the gate, they're showcasing really all the potential that they have. And that's great for our league to have teams like, you know, uh, Dallas and, you know, Houston, Sacramento now coming and showing back signs that, you know, um, they have a bright future. And finally, now with Supersport no longer showing the NBA, where can people follow the action here in South Africa? I know you're also very big on social media also, but how do we now watch the games? Look, we have signed a, a partnership uh, with, with Queste, uh for the rest of Africa. We have an unprecedented level of, uh, you know, exposure in streetwear. In South Africa, you can watch the game still on 
Cosec Free Sport on Open View HD. Or the alternative here is on NBA League Pass. You know, I mean, it's available on the NBA app that I encourage all basketball fans to download. You can watch the game at your leisure, live, or, you know, some of the replays, uh, you know, at any time, really, and also in different formats. You know, there are shorter versions. Uh, but there's nothing beats the excitement of the live experience. And I think, you know, we posted uh, yesterday in our office uh, some you know fans and friends of yep. NBA Africa and just you know some partners to watch the first two games and it was uh, great, greatly attended and we had a great time interacting with our fans and seeing Boston against Philly and, and also um, Golden State, State and Oklahoma. Oklahoma City. Yeah, great. I was actually there uh, to watch yeah, some of those games. That's right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Mr. Abadou Galofol, thank you very much for joining us on SAFM. We wish you all the best uh, for this weekend in Pukeng and hopefully we'll make it there uh, in Pukeng to go watch the finals of the Junior NBA. No, I would love to see you in Pukeng. It's a great, great event and I'm looking forward to driving there tomorrow and staying through Sunday in the Northwest Province, Royal Pukeng Nation. Great stuff. Thank you, sir. Mr. Amadou Galofall, NBA Africa Managing Director, just uh, telling us about some of the programs that they do here in, uh, in Africa. They've got an office in Johannesburg and also to help us look ahead to the new season because I know there are a lot of basketball fans out there and sometimes they feel neglected. So there you have it. Uh, the man says it's tough to look um, beyond the Golden State Warriors, but he's excited that there are a lot of challenges and a lot of people have been talking about the Houston Rockets as the underdogs and he's also mentioned them, Mr. Amadou Gallo Fall. So, looking forward to seeing what they will do at this season. And all you LeBron James fans, I'm sure you're looking forward to what the LA Lakers will do. Can he carry the team alone though? We'll have to wait and see. Up next, we'll speak to Professor Steve Cornelius, Head of uh, Department of Law at the University of Pretoria. SAFM, we pride ourselves in playing the best in local music. of your soothing weekend music. This is SAFM. Tabiso Musia on SAFM. And now let's welcome Professor Steve Cornelius from the University of Pretoria, former member, as I mentioned earlier on, of the IAAF's Disciplinary Committee. And he'll talk to us about just uh, the postponement of these new regulations that were due to come into effect in on the 1st of November and what it means going forward. Prof, good evening and thank you very much for being able to speak to us on SAFM. Good evening, Tabisha, and thanks for having me on the show. Please help us firstly understand just the postponement of the implementation of the implementation of these rules. Was the IAAF forced to? Is it a genuine attempt to let the appeal process run its course? Uh, Athletic South Africa and Castor Semenya launched a challenge to these regulations before the Court of Arbitration for Sport. And as part of the applications, one of the requests were that there should also be a postponement. Uh, of the implementation of these regulations because uh, 
if the Court of Arbitration should eventually rule in our favour, then obviously it would make no sense if the regulations took effect immediately. So there was a bit of a negotiation to and fro, but eventually the IAAF agreed that pending the outcome of this case, uh, the, the regulations will be postponed because of the, the, the applications that were put in in this regard, particularly by the legal team of Athletics South Africa. Uh, so it's, it's just a recognition that there is a legal process going and that we give the court an opportunity to make up its mind before the regulations take effect. Now, right at the end of their statement, Prof, they say that they believe that the Court of Arbitration for, for Sport will vindicate them and the, the regulations will come into effect. What do you make of their strong stance on this matter? Because they seem to still have that strong stance. Well, I think in, in any case, if, if a lawyer takes such a strong case, it's a bit of arrogance. I think um, uh, it's always in, in any legal proceedings, even if you think you have a very strong case, there might always be something that comes up or, or some view that the that the judges on the panel might come up with that, that you might not have anticipated. So obviously they are confident in their case. I think as part of Athletics of Africa's team, I think we are very confident in our case. Uh, but in the end, you know, it's not for any of us to decide will the court uphold it or not. That's for the court of arbitration itself to decide will they uphold it or not. And I don't think it's appropriate for a lawyer uh, in advance to preempt what, what the court will do. Now, the, the defense team that you are part of uh, once cares to declare these new rules as being discriminatory. Is this, is this more than an athletics issue, Prof? Does it now border on being a human rights matter? Uh, yeah, it doesn't border on a human rights issue. This is a human rights issue, first mm. and foremost. And uh, as I've said right from the outset in April already, uh, this is not about just athletics as a sport. It's not about one athlete, uh, although she is also challenging these regulations. But this is about fundamental human rights of all athletes in sports. And I'm really concerned that if if we do not get this whole idea of human rights uh, uh, protected in sports, and if we are not careful with these matters, that there might be similar oppressive and, and some probably even more oppressive regulations to come not only in athletics but in other sports as well. So for us, it's, it's a big human rights issue more than just an athletics issue. So you think it will have major consequences for gender rights? I think so, for gender rights, but also for athletes' rights in general. Yeah. I think uh, there's, there's been a long time in, in world sports where athletes were always subjected to the whims of the big sports federations uh, and, and just the scandals in FIFA and even in the IWF itself in past years yeah. um, under the previous president uh, all attest to the fact that there has been a lot of abuses that have taken place in sports and the fight for human rights in sports is important in that respect as well so that we safeguard sports for the future. You've publicly said back in April that the IAAF insists on ostracizing certain individuals. Uh, do, you, do you believe that CASTA is being targeted here? Because they haven't come out to say so, but a lot of people looking at some of the distances that they are, they are putting these regulations on believe that she's being targeted. Yeah. Um, well, I've also said from the outset, for me, it's about a broader issue than just CASTA's amenia. But it's very difficult, if you look at these regulations, to to avoid the assumption that perhaps they are targeted at her because uh, the, the regulations also do not quite fit with what they claim to be the research they're basing it on. 
So, so the one question, for instance, would be, even in the research that was published back then, the hammer throw and pole vault figured um, strongly, yeah. but they were not covered in these regulations. So that is a question, why not, if it was not targeted at specific athletes? For those who've just joined us, by the way, we're speaking to Professor Steve Cornelius, head of the Department of Law at the University of Pretoria, just to get a better understanding of uh, this case and where we are now and and what is expected uh, going uh, forward. Now, um, Prof, uh, from what you've just said now, and what exactly then is the defense arguing? Are you arguing the rules specifically or that the research that they did to get to, to these rules is not adequate? Yeah, well, obviously I can't discuss the details of the case right now um, because the matter is pending. Mm. But it's, it's going to take a multi-pronged approach and we will, you know, attack all the aspects that we think uh, will. Human rights is a big aspect, as we've already discussed. But, but we will also look at the research and, and other aspects as well. Are testosterone levels the only way to differentiate between men and women? Because that seems to be the case here in, 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 in this matter. Well, I think uh, Professor Ross Tucker in, in, at, at the University of Cape Town uh, also in April mentioned uh, in, in one of the interviews I saw that he was speaking on that uh, it's, it's very difficult actually to find any logical biological marker that is an accurate differentiation between men and women. Uh, the problem is that all biological aspects have degrees of variation and there's no fixed point where you can say this is where women stop and men began. Um, so I, I think from that point of view, that's, that's one of the difficulties with, with any regulations, not only these particular ones, but with any regulations where you are trying to, to maintain a binary differentiation between men and women. It's, it's because there is no clear-cut differentiation uh, from, from a biological point of view. And Professor Andrew Gallman also said um, that such a mess, uh, that, the, that the, he described the analysis actually as such a mess that he can't really figure out what data they're working with, what exactly they are doing, or the connection between some of their analysis and their scientific goals. Is that the view that you are sharing? The, the same well, view? Well, obviously, um, I'm a lawyer, so, so I look at what the scientists tell me and, mm. and make something of it. But um, that, that is an aspect that has been mentioned. So, so obviously, we'll, we will pursue that um, in, in our deliberations as well. So in simple English, is, is there another way of testing for what gives an unfair advantage or, or this test should just not happen at all? Well, I think it's, it's very difficult to formulate an accurate test. Um, my feeling is uh, that the WTA, the Women's Tennis Association, have, I, I think, one of the better rules. And it simply says, if you are legally defined as a woman and um, psychologically you view yourself as a woman, then you participate in women's tennis. And there is no attempt there to, to find any biological or scientific way to, to delineate that because um, it, it seems there is no accurate way to do that, that that makes a clear distinction between the one gender and the other. And previously, what kind of rules have been in place for athletes with, with this um, type of condition as they describe it? Or, and, and how do those rules differ now from what's being proposed by the IAAF? The previous version of these specific regulations uh, were basically similar, um, but they apply to all events, not just to selected events. And they set a threshold of 10 nanomoles per liter um, testosterone in the blood. 
uh, whereas the current ones have half that. So, so they've reduced that level to five nanomoles. Um, so that's that's one of the big changes. And then, of course, the other big change is that the current regulations only apply to certain events and only to certain track events, whereas the previous regulations apply to, to all female participants across the board. Mm. Uh, there are some other minor technical differences, but, but those are the two uh, major differences between the two versions of regulations. Now, the first version was um, validly challenged by an Indian athlete, Duty Chan, yes. Uh, before the Court of Arbitration for Sport in 2015. Mm. And the court then said that the IAAF must come up with more research to justify these regulations. Um, so they believe they have now come up with the research. We believe otherwise. So in the end, the Court of Arbitration are the ones that will have to make that ruling and determine who is right. And now, when is CAS expected to hear the case, Prof, and how long will then their deliberation take? The case we expect to hear in, in February. Uh, there's quite a lot of processes uh, that are already ongoing. Um, there's a lot of preparation that goes into a case like this. So, so we are hopeful that we will um, have the actual hearing in February. And then we, we might get a result by March or April next year and, and get, get the answer that we're looking for uh, either way. You mentioned Duty Chand earlier on, and she went to go take part in the Olympics when the rules were not in place. How was her performance then? And what could you could you read something out of that? No, it's difficult to, to read something into that. Um, her performances were at, at the level that one would have expected of her. Um, uh, she is not at the real she's she's very good in in the asian championships Mm. and so but when it comes to including the caribbean and u.s sprinters she's not quite at that level so obviously it's it's difficult to compare then um her performance at the olympics because of that Mm. so now with cares basically there's only is the only one possible outcome or only two possible outcome it's either a yes or a no uh, from cares as far as the defense case is concerned Yes, it's, it's laws not quite as simple as that because um, in duty chance case, one would have expected uh, uh, either a yes or a no. Yes, the regulations are acceptable or no, they are not. And yet the, the panel in that case decided to say we'll suspend the, the regulations and give the IWF time to come up with more convincing arguments. So that's also not beyond the realm of possibility in this case that they might defer the matter again. So it's similar, I think, in some instances to, to a constitutional court challenge here in South Africa. The, the court sometimes might give the, the one party an opportunity to correct or, or to make changes or so. So I think it's not going to be necessarily just a yes, you are right or no, you are wrong answer. Mm. And um, concerns have also been raised that this decision now will now come uh, closer to the start of the new season. Is that a concern for Custer's defense team? Um, I'm not sure if, if that's a concern. Uh, obviously, that's something they will have to answer that I can't speak on their behalf. But um, obviously, also seeing and when she appears on television, and so she does her thing with her coaching staff, and, yeah. and I think she leaves all those matters in the hands of the attorneys. And I'm sure she will be ready when the season starts either way. And uh, especially the main focus would be later in the year for the World Championships. Mm. So whatever the outcome is, I think there would be enough time for her to prepare for the World Championships.
And just as we wrap up, Prof, I understand that there was a seminar at Tax last week or the week before. Um, who made up the panel and is this what you were discussing? Can you just shed some more light there? Because I saw it later on after it happened. Oh, yes. Uh, at the University of Pretoria, we have the Centre for Sports Law in Africa, uh, which the, the co-chair of that is, is myself and, and Professor Rian Pluter. And we organized a conference earlier in the year already, but it, but it took place now in October with a view to the 1 November possible implementation uh, of, of some international experts. We, we had a colleague from South Korea. We had someone from Canada. We had from the United States. We had someone from Australia. Uh, so, so we just had a, a mix of some top-notch academics uh, who work on the topic of sports law and, and sports science who discussed uh, just issues of eligibility to participate in women's events in general, but invariably the discussions all turned towards the IAAF regulations because at the time there was still no final indication whether they would be suspended or whether they would take effect on 1 November. Okay. Professor Steve Cornelius, thank you very much for uh, finding time to speak to us. We really appreciate it just to clarify uh, this matter and uh, to uh, just make us understand where we are at the moment. And we really appreciate that you found time to speak to us. And there's somebody here on social media that says you were their professor back in the day and you are top notch and they are so proud of the work that you've do, you're doing and the stance that you've taken. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And I must thank the, the public out there for all the support. It's been overwhelming, and, and I really appreciate it. Thank you very much there, Professor Steve Cornelius, a man who took a stance, of course, when these new regulations uh, were announced back in April and he decided to resign from his role in one of the IAAF's uh, panel there because he wanted to stand for the right thing. And he's clearly a man of his word here, Professor Steve Cornelius, because he is now assisting uh, the ASA and Casta Semenya's defense team as they try to challenge uh, what they call, uh, what they're describing as unfair regulations that are being imposed here uh, by the IAAF and that tweet actually came from Muturi Cox who says a very honorable man he lectured me in intellectual property law in my third year and yeah no I think we can also vouch for for him there Professor Steve Cornelius. Up next we're still going to be discussing this topic and we're going to speak to Madeline Paper, former Australian a middle distance runner of course and she did um, run during the time of cast and during the time of this controversy and as I mentioned at the top of the show uh, that she was very vocal again Casta, but now she's on the other side and she is in full support of Casta Semenya and she'll make us um, understand why uh, she's had a change of, of, of stance and a change of heart and we'll speak to Madeline Pape after this break and if you do want to sh- join the conversation at any time, always feel free to call us on 0891-104-207 our SMS line is 40938 or WhatsApp 061-4104-107 hashtag SAFM spot on Moving away from the old concept of teaching being a calling to now looking at it as a proper career of choice. So I was speaking to some young South African teachers last night, both of whom have been in the classroom for less than three years. And I asked them each why they became teachers. And they both told me that it was a calling. And at the same time, they see it as a career. And so they've pursued higher education to make sure that they are qualified to do it, to make sure that they've learned what they need to learn to be good teachers. Sydney Shafe, American Teacher of the Year. Monday to Friday, 9 to midday, The Talking Point on SAFM.
Let's have the conversation. 0891-104-207. And let's continue the conversation now to sp- and speak to Madeline, a paid performer, a uh, runner, as I mentioned, represented Australia at the Beijing Olympic Games back in 08, also at the World University Games and at the World Champs. And uh, as I mentioned, she did uh, compete against Casta. She was very vocal. Uh, but as I mentioned also uh, that she's now standing with Casta and she's also pursuing a PhD in sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Madeline, good evening and thank you very much for joining us on SAFM here in South Africa. We really, really appreciate your time. Hi, Debiso. Thank you so much for having me and thank, and hello to all of your listeners as well. Firstly, just a good, what's your reaction to the decision to suspend the implementation of these new regulations or was the IAAF left with no choice? What was your reaction? Oh, I mean, I think I was, I was relieved, to be honest. Um, I think that's the right decision because uh, now I think we have a very good chance of seeing these regulations overturned, hopefully once and for all. So... Um, I think it's great that athletes aren't going to be, no athlete is going to be penalised in the meantime while there's such a big question mark hanging over these rules. As I mentioned to Professor Steve Cornelius earlier on, the IAAF still says in their statement that we remain confident of the legal, scientific and ethical basis for the regulations and therefore fully expect CAS to reject these challenges. They seem keen to go full steam with these regulations and they are very confident. What do you make of that stance? I mean, I think they they've sort of fi- found themselves between a rock and a hard place in terms of um, their position because they've they've dug themselves into a hole with being so committed to this particular stance. Uh, and I think they have to project to the track and field community that uh, they're not uh, making this stance or they're not they're not in- introducing these uh, these rules without the, the necessary scientific evidence, but the reality is that the evidence that they're relying on is definitely contestable and it's going to be contested very hard at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Do you, do you believe, like many, Madeline, that they are targeting Casta Semenya, looking at the distances that these regulations will apply in? Yeah, I mean, I, I really hate to, to say that and, and, and I wish that I didn't see it this way, but I, I don't see how, how we can assume otherwise when we look at the the disconnect between uh, the the evidence that the IAAF alleged they have and then the rules that they have implemented where the, the events that they focused on um, are actually inconsistent with their own their own findings. So it does appear that uh, there's been a very concerted effort to focus on the events that Casta Semenya competes in. Now, you caught a lot of people by surprise and you were even called a sellout after you made a U-turn on your original stance. Firstly, back in 2009, you were on the other side. Why did you at that stage feel that um, maybe uh, Custer running was unfair? I think at the time, I at the, at the World Championships in 2009, I was really uh, really in, a, in an environment where there weren't any alternative points of view being put forward. So it was... It was really a bubble of ignorance in a lot of in a lot of ways, and uh, there weren't people in the sport at that time taking a leadership stance and encouraging people to think differently about the topic. So, um, in a lot of ways, it was, I guess, a case of groupthink um, in terms of me just kind of going along with the, the opinions and the points of view that were being expressed around me, and really without having any opportunity to think differently because there just weren't alternative points of view being being expressed. Um, in that environment at that time. Mm. 
And then you later described that period as a witch hunt and a dark day for athletics. What led then to the change of view that so you in, in that that in, that you actually went as far as testifying at the court of arbitration for sport in support of Duty Chand? Right. Yeah. So to be so, it actually happened over time for me. I mean, I I moved to the United States to do my PhD in sociology and and really hadn't thought uh, about that time in my life. I hadn't reflected on that that time in 2009 um, for for many years afterwards. And it was only when uh, I realized that there were um, both scientific and ethical questions being raised about the practice of uh, regulating women with high testosterone uh, that I even realized that there was the possibility of thinking differently about this topic. Um, so in the process of reading further myself and uh, and taking the time to think through these um, sort of complex uh, issues, um, I realised that uh, I couldn't, in good conscience, um, support these support these policies. Mm. I remember back at the time when you test you testified, you said you don't want to be controversial, you don't want to gain popularity, but you believed it was the right thing to do, both factually and politically. What do you, what did you mean by politically? Uh, so the way I the way I look at it when when I um, when I see Judy Chand, uh, if I was to meet Judy Chand in in the street, for instance, um, I would fully recognise her as a woman and and um, uh, acknowledge that um, uh, acknowledge that the way she wanted to be recognised was um, what I was also prepared to prepared to do, um, and I'm not prepared to then be someone who turns around uh, and says to Judy Chand. Um, okay, sure, I recognise you as a woman outside of sport, but I'm sorry, when it comes to sport, we have a different set of rules. Um, I, I personally can't um, can't support that kind of double standard. So for me, you know, I see Judy Chand uh, and Casper Semenya as my competitors, um, as my sisters, uh, both inside and outside of sport, um, and I'm not going to support a double standard. Mm. And, and now you, you're saying that regulations are flawed. And is it because of the research, Madeline, that they've done? Is, is, is that for you uh, not good enough, the kind of research that they've done? Yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing here is a case of uh, the IAAF having made up their mind about what kinds of regulations they want to put into place and then going out and trying to produce the scientific research to support it. Uh, normally, we would want to see a situation where uh, the science um, is conducted independently of, mm. of policy, and, and, and in fact, uh, you know, we wait uh, until the science is settled before we we move forward uh, with designing policy. But instead, in this case, we're seeing the reverse. So the IAAF have, have committed to a particular policy stance. They've then gone about uh, su- supporting research that uh, that um, ends up legitimising their particular stance. Um, and so we're not seeing uh, we're not seeing full scientific debate as we should. Um, around this topic. They seem to think that testosterone is, is, is the only determining factor, basically, on what gives uh, one person an advantage over the other. Um, what do you make of, of, of this view? Should it be the only determining factor? I mean, I think that any athlete who hears that uh, would would have to admit that that doesn't actually make sense to them. And I mean, I've, I've now, as part of my research, interviewed um, a lot of elite athletes uh, and consistently, uh, they and their coaches say, well, athletic performance can't be reduced to just testosterone. Mm. Um, and so I think that's where um, sometimes people have missed the, the point that Judy Chan's um, experts and legal team were trying to make, which is not that testosterone has no role, but that 
athletic performance is extremely complicated and there are many, many factors that can, can contribute to someone uh, being successful uh, as an athlete. And it's impossible for us to reduce it to one single biological factor. And, and what, what, what are these other factors, uh, Madeline, that you can share with us? I mean, I think one uh, area that often goes unrecognised uh, is the importance of, uh, you know, good sports science and good sports medicine. You know, I come from, the, I come from Australia and in Australia uh, we consider our competitive advantage relative to other countries to be the, the, the high quality of our sports science and sports medicine. So that's what we as a country invest in in order to make sure that um, our athletes have a competitive advantage over our competitors. Um, so uh, that kind of uh, that, the, the, the contribution of those kinds of things to athletic performance uh, don't get measured uh, and they don't get problematized or singled out for scrutiny. Uh, I think in part because um, a lot of the countries that are powerful in the sport of track and field are ones that benefit from um, from those kinds of sources of advantage. Uh, so instead, we we uh, we focus on on other alleged sources of advantage and and turn a blind eye to the things that tend to advantage uh, women located in, in um, wealthy countries. So it's actually a more complex matter than what the IAAF is making it out to be? Absolutely, yes. Okay. Uh, for those who've just joined us, we are speaking to former Australian uh, runner and Olympian Madeline Pape uh, just to understand uh, why she's standing with Casta Semenya. And she's also mentioned to us that she's actually had a better understanding of the situation because of her research. Uh, she's uh, going for a PhD in sociology, as I mentioned earlier on. And she's just giving us some insight and a better understanding of what this whole matter is about. And we are going to continue this uh conversation after this quick break and uh, Silo has called us from Mukupana. I'll come to you Silo after this break. Why settle for more when you can have the most? Get up to 13% interest per annum with an ABSA fixed deposit account. Your capital and returns are guaranteed and you pay no fees. For more info visit your nearest branch call 0860-111-515 or visit absa.co.za forward slash fixed deposit. T's and C's apply. Absa is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. Leading sport stories of the day on SAFM. Let's go to the line. Silo in Mukupane. Thank you for holding. Uh, what's your comment? What's your view, sir? Uh, thanks. Look, I, I think what the association did was to try to scare people like Casta and others who are doing very good in uh, athletics. Because so if you can, uh, I think you know, many black athletes were the ones who have been harassed by this, the same association. Um, but when it comes to um, the, so the color people who looks like um, us men, there was nothing, nothing about them. But when it comes to Kaza, he is a man who is disadvantaging uh, other women, so he should be squashed out. That 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 that's my view, and and, and it, it is so very shameful for whoever sitting there thinking that what they are doing could be just right and thanks for the lady for coming out now to support and the um, and, and the gentleman that you had earlier yeah. for resigning from that um uh, unjust uh, 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 um, uh, management thing i think 
that was so very good of him to get out from those people because they're not saving the people, but their egos and the other faction of the of, of the athletic. Okay. Thank you, Tavisa. Thank you, Silo. And I think it's a similar point to uh, what Bongani is also saying on, on Twitter that um, I, I had a particular view of Australians because I'm a big rugby supporter. But after hearing Madeleine Pape today, I am changing my mind and I'm saying well done to her and big ups to her for standing up for the truth here. And Abel Kekana says, Umuntu ya changer, ngegum confirme. Madeline, just to go back to this comment by Silo, he's basically saying that it's unfair. Um, is it... Is, 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 is this story more about just science? Is it not just about science only? I mean, I don't think it's about... I, I, I don't see this issue as about science At only. All. And um, mm. I think, you know, for me, one thing I've asked myself is, okay, so what happens if the science becomes more compelling? What would I do then? Like, how would I feel um, about the rights of women with high testosterone to compete alongside me? Um, and I've realised... Uh, I guess similar to what I explained um, before, that um, at the end of the day, for me, it, it doesn't actually, uh, for me, it doesn't matter what the science has to say, uh, because if I recognise uh, a woman as a woman, then she's a woman to me, both outside of and inside of sport. Okay, let's go to uh, Palisa calling us from Johannesburg. Palisa, good evening and thank you for joining us. Hi, hi. I hope all, all of you are good. Yes, we so, are. Thanks. My comment is that um, I, I applaud Madeline for coming out here and, and speaking with um, Ocasta. But at the same time, I feel like she was in a point of privilege where she could have done the research much earlier because it was not the first time that she spoke about this, that she even raced with Ocasta's domain. I feel like that's also like white privilege at its most. Now that she can come here and tell us now that she go and read a book. She should have read the book months ago before she even uttered those words. So it's unfair. Good for her that she's learned something. But at the same time, she must know. It's not a thing. Okay, okay Palisa, thank you for that. Madeline, what's your response to, to that comment? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great critique. And for me, I mean, when I, when I think about it, I think uh, that we can't necessarily blame individual athletes who are competing at the world championship and Olympic level for their, for their, uh, for their views. Because for me, as a sociologist, I think about, okay, what are the institutional structures? Uh, what are the institutional factors here that are, are creating a situation where athletes have a particular point of view and they aren't being encouraged to think differently? So for me, uh, I think that that critique should be levelled. Uh, I mean, I think athletes have to take responsibility for their for their views. I don't think we can excuse them. I don't think we can. Um, I don't think I can excuse myself for my for my views back in 2009. But when I think about what the solution would be, for me, I think the the, the critical eye has to go on to the IAAF and people who are in positions of leadership and decision making who are in a position to promote different ways of thinking about about this topic. Now, do the male athletes, Madeline, also suffer from the same scrutiny where one athlete is deemed to have higher testosterone levels than the other? No, and I mean, I think that points to the the very strong uh, gender uh, inequalities in, in sport, right? And the assumption that uh, there is no such thing as an unfair advantage when it comes to men. So leaving doping aside, there's no such thing as a naturally occurring unfair advantage when it comes to men. And therefore no need to sort of police uh, the bodies of male athletes. Uh, but with women, there is the assumption that they are inferior athletes and that we should be able to put a ceiling on their performance. Uh, 
uh, and that therefore they are the legitimate targets of, of policing efforts. Loazi or his SMS says, I must ask you if, if you would accept if the IOC added a third category of gender. I would be against that, and I can explain why. So for me, you can't impose a category onto someone who doesn't identify with that category. Uh, I have heard people start to talk about the possibility of, of adding a third category, uh, which... Uh, as a side note, I think would be just as difficult to draw boundaries. I don't, I don't think it would solve the problem of uh, trying to draw clear boundaries around around different categories. Uh, but that aside, um, I don't think we can impose a category onto someone who isn't actually claiming that is their identity. Uh, so in the case of Judy Chan, for instance, uh, Judy Chan said it multiple times during her appeal to the Court of Arbitration for Sport that she identifies as a woman. She's been raised a woman. She considers herself a woman. She wants to be seen by other people as a woman. Uh, and I don't think it's right to impose on her um, a category that is really meaningless to her in terms of her lived experiences. And finally, now, what would you like to see happen? Uh, what, what, are you, what, what, would you like to, what are you expecting from the Court of Arbitration for, 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 for sport that will hear this matter next year? Gosh, I mean... I'm, I, I feel optimistic uh, about the, the Court of Arbitration for Sport and that, and that appeal because I think um, Casa Semenya and Athletics South Africa have, uh, are building very strong cases and have uh, very, very experienced, knowledgeable people uh, testifying for them. Uh, but what I, what I really hope will, will follow from that um, is that the IAAF is going to uh, adopt a different approach and, and finally abandon... Uh, this this um, concerted effort to exclude uh, women with high testosterone and instead start to invest some of that energy and effort into educating uh, the sport of track and field uh, about uh, why it makes sense to accept uh, these women and celebrate their achievements. I mean, Casa Semenya could be such uh, an amazing role model for the sport of track and field internationally. Uh, and I, I really think that up to this point, it's been a huge missed opportunity for the sport, because uh, even though she's a huge hero in in South Africa, uh, she hasn't uh, she hasn't received the same recognition in other parts of the world. And I think that our sport, track and field, could so benefit uh, from from celebrating what Casa Semenya has achieved. Great stuff, Madeline. Thank you very much for finding time to speak to us. We really, really appreciate it. And a lot of people are, are actually uh, saying that they're grateful for your stance here and that you are voice uh, for Ocasta Asimenia. And we, we are, well, we'll wait and see what happens next year. But thank you very much for giving us clarity and insight into this uh, matter. Thank you so much for, for letting me join you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Madeline Pape, the former Olympian, of course, ran against Casta Semenya at the World Champs back in 2009. And now she's standing with Casta Semenya as she, she fights what many people have described, including Madeline, as a witch hunt against her. That's it. That's our time. Goes always goes so fast here um, on SAFM Sport One. It's already 8 o'clock. Time for news. Thank you to Luyolo, uh, Sylvester, and Debo Khadebe on social media. Mr. Ashraf Gada up next. The big hitter tonight, Zingiswa Lusi, the newly elected Kosatu president on the viewpoint but firstly let's go to news